Welcome. I'm Hani Fahim, and this is Tales from the Opside. I run a company called Stack.io, which is an internet ops company. We're essentially responsible for keeping a piece of the internet up and running. It's a highly technical job requiring knowledge of many different fundamental technical concepts. The internet is actually composed of many layers, each one building on top of the last, all having to work in concert to make sure that Google or Facebook or Reddit come up when you request it. Being in ops, we face a lot of technical challenges that push the limits of our knowledge. But sometimes we're faced with a challenge that goes beyond the technical. While we can think of the internet as this isolated network blob, in reality, events from well outside this blob can have an impact. Even events on a cosmic scale can affect a little internet ops company located in Toronto. And what I've learned over the years is just how interconnected this universe really is. Today's tale takes place on June 30th, 2012 at around 8 p.m. Eastern. It was a beautiful summer's evening in Toronto. I was in the middle of washing dishes, listening to some music, when my phone buzzed. Hmm, What's this? It was our trusty pager system. You have many triggered incidences. Site outages. A lot of them. Oh boy. Multiple sites down all at the same time. My first thought was, this must be an attack. I jumped online and pulled up our monitoring system. Alright, let's see what we got. I noticed many sites were down, but not everyone. Maybe it wasn't an attack. Huh, high load. I also noticed that several systems were reporting high load. Now, load is a technical term. Computers, despite how amazing they are, can only do one thing at a time. A computer's CPU or core can only process one calculation at any given time, but they do so really fast, so it seems like they're multitasking. When you ask a core to do some work, you place this work in a queue and the CPU will process them in order. Load, then, is the measurement of the size of the queue, how much work is waiting to be processed. So high load amongst our customers indicated that for some reason, the workload has shot up. High load is a fairly common phenomenon within an application environment, and when troubleshooting is a good leading indicator of where to look first. However, what is unusual is for load alerts to occur across many customers all at the same time. This would indicate something bigger going on. I needed to dig further. All right, let's log into this system. I started logging into some of the high load systems to see what was going on. I started off with a database server. As I mentioned, the internet is composed of layers. A database is a low-layer component, so problems at this layer will affect everything above it. So it's a good place to start. Oh, that's interesting. I noticed that the system was fairly responsive. For a system complaining about high load, I would expect it to be sluggish. The act of logging in requires some CPU processing. And with high load, my login request would get added to the back of the long queue 
so I would expect it to take some time to process. Okay, let's see who's hogging all this CPU. I went to check what was consuming all the CPU and causing all that load. Well, hello, MySQL. MySQL is a popular database software. Some people call it MySQL, but that's just wrong. Why are you so busy? I mean, this was a dedicated database server, so I would have expected MySQL to be a top consumer. I can't seem to get into this database. However, I was unable to get into MySQL itself. That part was unresponsive, which would explain why the site is down. All right, let's try a different server. I went to a different database server for a different customer. Huh. I noticed the same thing. Really responsive on the command line. But I couldn't get into MySQL. This is so strange. Those two customers shared nothing in common. Why were they experiencing the same symptoms? Let's try something else. I decided to try a different component. I went to an application server this time, which was higher up in the stack. Okay, let's try this uh, Java server, see what you're up to. This was a Java-based application. Java is a popular programming language. You too? It was also consuming high load. Let's check the logs. I went to check the logs. Empty. No requests were being processed. So why are you so busy? High load means it's busy, but seemed like nothing was being processed, at least according to the logs. Okay, let's yet again try something different. I went to a different customer with a completely different stack, meaning different technologies in use. Let's try this Ruby server. This time, a Ruby-based application server. Ruby is another programming language. High load for you too, eh? Mm, let's see those logs. Ruby was also using all the CPU. Nothing? Its logs were empty too. I'm so confused. This made no sense. MySQL, Ruby, Java, what do these all have in common? It's like your phone and TV and radio all acting up in the same way. I mean, they're completely different devices. Looking back at the monitoring system, every system complaining about the load was either a database, Java, or Ruby server. The only customers not affected were the ones that didn't use any of these technologies. Let's see this Python server. Python is yet another programming language, but it was functioning normally. What was the link? I needed a better way to diagnose the issue. I had to dig deeper. If your car is making a weird noise when driving, while you can sit and guess what it means, you really have to stop and pop open the hood to figure out what's going on. Or maybe get a mechanic to do so. The equivalent of popping open the hood was busting out a tool called S-Trace. S-Trace is a diagnostic tool that allows us to inspect what kind of things these misbehaving programs are asking the CPU for. It allows us to trace the system calls programs make, which is what the S stands for. S-Trace can be a very, very verbose tool. Oh, jeez. Very, very verbose. It can spew out tons of output and is very hard to make sense of when it does. But in rare cases, it can actually be quite useful. So I ran S-Trace against MySQL to see what it was doing under the hood. Interesting. Then I ran it against the Java server. Oh, same thing. And then Ruby. Well, there's our link. 
MySQL, Java, Ruby, they're all asking the CPU for the exact same thing over and over and over again. What time is it? The system call is named get time of day. I mean, the CPU responds very quickly with the current date, but they don't seem to be satisfied and ask for it again and again. All of them. Why were they all obsessed with the time? What time is it? I checked the time and it was 8.30 p.m. I pulled up Google and went to search for something. Um, what do I search for? How do I describe this problem? Okay, let me try. I tried time event. This was a Hail Mary. This was not going to work. Or was it? Oh, what's this? It was a leap second. A leap second? On June 30th, 2012, at 11.59.59 p.m., an extra second was introduced into the clock. But it's 8.30 p.m. now. Then I noticed it said UTC. With daylight saving, that translated to 8 p.m. Eastern, right when things went down. Yes, okay. Okay, this must have been it. But it still didn't help me. Things were still down. Somehow an extra second caused processes to obsess over time? How do I fix this though? I mean, things were down right now, so I decided to take the very heavy-handed approach. Okay, let's just reboot this thing. The universal fix to all things tech. Turning it off and on again. Recoveries. Lots of recoveries. The sites were back up and running. MySQL was acting all normal again, as if nothing had happened. Within an hour or so, everything had recovered. What the f just happened here? Honestly, I was really puzzled. I had no idea what just occurred, and I hated even more that the fix was turning it off and on again. It would make an autopsy, so to speak, nearly impossible. I spent the next few hours trolling through the other pages of Google. You know, everything after page one. Within a few hours, I started reading reports that this problem had also impacted Reddit, Mozilla, and even airlines such as Qantas. Okay, good to know we're not alone. What the f is a leap second? Yeah, what he said. Let's look at Wikipedia. Checking the internet's know-it-all database, it's an extra second occasionally applied to accommodate the difference between precise time and imprecise observed time. Oh boy, half the terms in this sentence are links. I sensed a Wikipedia rabbit hole ahead. Time is derived from a day. The entire notion of time itself is centered around the definition of a single day. Seems really arbitrary. Arbitrary, but very human, to use it as a base. We witness the sun rise and set in a seemingly endless loop and everything revolves around us humans, right? So if we chop up a day, we get hours and seconds, and if we multiply, we get months and years. Okay, what's this precise time? Precise time is what we know. I assume time should be precise to begin with. It's based on atomic clocks. Atomic clocks are the most accurate time standards known. A series of atomic clocks, about 400 of them around the world, are used and compared to establish the International Atomic Time Standard, or TAI. Shouldn't that be IAT? It's French. Oh. This is apparently where the definition of a second comes from, the SI unit for second. Specifically, atomic clocks based on the cesium atom. 
That's pretty neat how it works. I won't get into that here. Fine. A day officially has 86,400 seconds or 24 hours, period. Okay, this is what I know. A day has 24 hours. So what's this imprecise time and why do I care? Imprecise time is all about the rotation of the Earth. Uh, according to this article, the Earth is not flat. Good to know. This is a bit of a tough concept. A day must be one rotation of the Earth, like 360 degrees. That's not correct. The Earth is in orbit around the Sun, so while we spin on our axis, we're also traveling along our orbit, so it's a little more than 360 degrees. What is it then? Imprecise time is really called solar time. The calculation of time based on the position of the Sun. A solar day is the time between the Sun returning to the same point in the sky. So what's this apparent solar time? Apparent solar time is what you can measure on the ground. It can be crudely measured with a sundial. The length of a solar day varies throughout the year. Of course it does. Depending on the time of year, a day can either be 16 minutes faster or slower than the average. Why is that? The Earth's orbit is not a perfect circle. It's actually an ellipse. Because that would make things easy, right? Due to physics, at certain times of the year, the Earth moves faster along its orbit than others. How do we base time off of this then? We don't. There's another concept called mean solar time, where they take the average throughout the year. Ah, that makes sense. And there are several time standards collectively known as universal time. Actually, there's one, two, three, five standards? The most common one is called UT1, which is the principal form of universal time. It gets more complicated. The length of a day is slowly increasing due to tidal acceleration by the moon? Due to the forces of gravity, the moon is actually tugging on the Earth and slowing us down. Slower rotation must mean longer days. That's correct. In fact, if you rewind about 620 million years ago, well before the dinosaurs, a day was only 22 hours long, and there were 13 months in a year, and a year lasted 400 days. The moon is slowly working towards tidal lock. Tidal lock has the effect of the same side of the Earth always facing the moon. The Earth already did this to the moon, which is why it always looks the same. Ah, it's payback time. So the best way to think about this, imagine you're driving your car down a straight road in the middle of the night. It's a full moon and the moon is directly above you as you drive. The moon is actually tugging upwards on your car as you drive due to gravity. Now let's say you're pulling an all-nighter and you continue driving. A few hours later, the moon is now located behind you as you drive. Because of the force of gravity, it's now tugging back on your car. And if you don't compensate for this, you will actually slow down. Now, on a small scale like you and your car, the forces are too small to be detected by humans alone. But on a global scale, it has the effect of slowing down the Earth's rotation... In fact, in the last 100 years or so, a day is about a minute longer than it used to be. It gets even more complicated. There are also cases where the Earth's rotation speeds up? Major events like earthquakes can have the effect of increasing the rate of rotation. Back in 2004, on December 26, there was a massive earthquake off the coast of Indonesia, which actually caused our day to shorten by three microseconds. It's insane. In 2011, a huge earthquake hit Japan. 
We may recall this as the partial meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. This shortened a day by 1.2 microseconds. Wow, even man-made structures can have an effect. It's true. NASA has calculated that the water stored in the Three Gorges Dam in China has increased the length of the day by 0.06 microseconds. That's incredible that they can measure this. Yes, it is. All of these factors results in changes in the moment of inertia. Oh, is that like the ice skater? Yes, it's like the ice skater. We probably all seen the animation of an ice skater twirling around and pulling in their arms, causing them to twirl faster. So the Earth is pulling in its arms? If that helps. And all of this is unpredictable. So what are clocks based on? Coordinated Universal Time, or UTC. Ah, French again, right? Yes. It's a cross between the two concepts of precise and imprecise time. Using atomic clocks as the base for precision, but with leap seconds to keep it in sync with UT1 when they drift apart. Because Earth's rotation is unpredictable, leap seconds are unpredictable. So how do they figure out when to add leap seconds? When these two standards drift apart by about one second, they announce a leap second with six months notice to bring it back into spec, usually in June or December. Well, that was a nice Wikipedia rabbit hole trip. So back to my problem in 2012, why did things break? The problem with leap seconds is everyone has a different way of implementing them. For Linux systems, which is what we use, as well as a large portion of the internet, the day can only ever have 86,400 seconds. How do leap seconds work then? To implement leap seconds, they instead repeat the last second of the day to emulate a leap second. This is the way it's always been done. Still doesn't explain why things broke in 2012. The answer to this was not going to be found in Wikipedia. Instead, it required deep diving into the source code of Linux itself, when a change was made all the way back in 2007, five years before the issue. A member of the Linux community noticed a problem with the source code for the leap second implementation, where a deadlock could occur, which is basically a way that your computer freezes. Looks like he changed a single line of code. He also added a comment. The only possible side effect of this removal might be that the timer fires one second too late after a leap second. Hilariously, this side effect is what took down large portions of the internet in 2012. The best way to illustrate this bug, think back to when we all had to change our clocks due to daylight saving. These days most devices are connected and update automatically, but in the past we had to go around and change each and every clock in our house. Now imagine for a moment that you forgot to update your wristwatch, and it still shows the time an hour slow. You need to be somewhere by 8am, so you check your watch and it reads 7.45. Great, you've got 15 minutes. But then you glance at another clock and see that it reads 8.45am. Panic quickly sets in because you're late. If you don't update your wristwatch, you'll constantly be panicking all day as you'll be perpetually late to every meeting. This is essentially what was happening in 2012 to Linux systems. But instead of an hour, it was one second, and things were checking billions of times over and over because they constantly thought they were late. 
the bug introduced in 2007 removed the piece of code to update the HR timer, the wristwatch, and it wasn't discovered until the leap second in 2012. So going back to our experience on that Saturday, things start to make sense. Remember, I noted that the systems were actually quite responsive, even though they had high load. Well, asking for the time is a very fast operation, so while the queue was long, the CPU was crunching through it very fast, but new requests for the time were being added just as quickly. Why MySQL and Java and Ruby? They happen to implement timers in their code that depend on the HR timer, or that wristwatch. And in retrospect, it wasn't all Java and Ruby apps, only certain ones that used programming frameworks like Ruby on Rails. Was our heavy-handed fix of restarting everything actually needed? It actually wasn't. There was a much simpler solution to the problem, which was to just reset the clock. Setting the date to the current date, the act of doing so runs the piece of code that was removed in 2007, and the systems magically fix themselves. It's funny, the Wikipedia page on leap seconds, I would say about a third is dedicated to actually describing the leap second, and the other two thirds is all about the issues it causes. And a lot of discussion from the clock people about abolishing this concept. Yes, the official clock people. It seems over the last 15 years, there has been a constant discussion about getting rid of it altogether. Looks like it all started in 2005. In 2005, the US proposed that the leap second be replaced by the leap hour. That just sounds like leap seconds with extra steps. The idea is to wait until the difference accumulates to one hour and then make the leap. The clock people decided that they needed more time. In 2007, they planned on soliciting other proposals and then take a vote in 2012. When 2012 hit, they again needed more time and postponed until 2015. Then in 2015, let, let me guess, they needed more time? Postponed to 2023. And all this time while the ultimate fate of the leap second was being debated, companies like Google and Amazon have done away with leap seconds entirely. Well, they have to do something. Instead, when a leap second is announced, they smear the second across an entire 24-hour period. Smear? In the 12 hours leading up to a second and 12 hours after, they slightly increase the length of each second so by the next day, all the clocks are in sync. Despite all this knowledge and analysis of the 2012 incident, the leap second in 2015 also caused chaos. Not on our systems. Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Amazon, and even Apple were disrupted for about 40 minutes during the June 2015 leap second. There was another leap second in December of 2016, although there weren't any reports of widespread outages. And there hasn't been another leap second in the four years since. It's 2020. Which goes to show you how unpredictable leap seconds are. If you were to ask me what I think, and thank you for asking. But I didn't ask. I believe the problem is every system that needs to keep track of time is left to implement the leap second concept on their own. This leaves very little consistency between systems and I believe is a large source of the chaos. 
The solution, in my view, is to have fewer systems implement this concept. Most connected devices already keep their clocks in sync using centralized time systems. A popular one is called NTP, which stands for Network Time Protocol. These protocols naturally handle time drift amongst all connected devices. And if we leave the concept of tracking leap seconds to these few centralized systems and do away with each device keeping track, there would be fewer issues. Now, this is not my idea. Recent versions of NTP and others already do this with a feature called SKU, but it's not widely adopted. Making this a technical problem to solve instead of a conceptual one would free the powers that be, the clock people, to focus on bigger issues. Like, how are we going to keep track of time on Mars? What is clear is how interconnected everything is. Who would have thought that our moon or an earthquake halfway around the world would ultimately cause my phone to buzz on that Saturday evening? If you recall, everyone feared that Y2K would cause entire centuries to go missing, but that ended up not being a thing. And we regularly have whole days inserted into our calendars during leap years. They should really be called leap days, but clearly that doesn't cause issues. However, inserting a single second into our clocks and ops people get paged. I want to thank you for lending me your ears. I personally love this subject matter and I had fun learning about the leap second. I hope you'll join me for future episodes to be released in the coming weeks. There's still a lot of good content to come. My name is Hani Fahim and this is Tales from the Offside. Side.